Facebook scams, log for shell forever, and tips for a cyber safe summer. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug Ameth, and with me, as always, is Paul Ducklin. How do you do, Paul? I'm super-duper Douglas. Starting to cool down a bit here in England. Yes. I think I picked the wrong day to go on a nice big country bicycle ride. <laughs> it was such a good idea when I set out. I'm and sure I thought, it was. I know, I'll, make it, I'll do a nice long ride, and then I'll just get the train home. So I'm in home in plenty of time for the podcast. And when I got there, because of the extreme heat, the trains were only running once every two hours. And I just missed one. <laughs> so oh. I had to ride all the way back. And I did just make it in time. Okay, well. So there you go. You and I are in the full swings of summer. And we have some tips for the summertime coming up later in the show. But first, I'd like to talk about this week in tech history this week in 1968. The Intel Corporation was formed by Gordon Moore, he of Moore's Law, and Robert Noyce. Noyce is credited as pioneer of the integrated circuit, or microchip, and Intel's first microprocessor would be the 4004, which was used for calculators. And a fun fact, the name Intel is a mashup of integrated electronics. So that company turned out pretty good. Yes. I guess, to be fair, maybe you would say co-pioneer. Yeah, I had a pioneer. Of famously, Jack... Jack Kilby of Texas Instruments, I think, came up with the first integrated circuit, but it still required parts in the circuit to be wired together. And Noyce solved the problem of kind of how to sort of bake them all in in silicon. I actually attended a speech by Jack Kilby oh, when cool. I was a freshly minted computer scientist. Absolutely fascinating, you know, research in the 1950s in America. And of course, Kilby famously did receive a Nobel Prize. I think in the year 2000, but uh, Robert Noyce, I'm sure would have been a joint winner, but he uh, had already died by that time and you cannot get a Nobel Prize posthumously. So Noyce never did get a Nobel Prize and Jack Sinclair Kilby did. Well, that was a long time ago and a long time from now, we may still be talking about Log4Shell, even though oh, there, dear, yes, there's a fix for it. The U.S. has come out and said that it could be decades before this thing is actually fixed. And by fixed, I mean... Well, let, let's be, <laughs> to be fair, they yeah. said perhaps a decade or longer. Yeah. But this is a body called the Cybersecurity Review Board, CSRB, part of the Department of Homeland Security, which was formed earlier this year. I don't know whether it was formed specifically because of Log4Shell or just because of supply chain source code issues becoming a big deal. And eight months, nearly eight months after Log4Shell was a thing, they produced this report, 42 pages. The executive summary alone runs to nearly three pages. And when I first glanced at this, I thought, oh, here we go. Some public servants have been told, come on, where's your report? You're the review board. <laughs> Publish or perish. Actually, although parts of it are indeed heavy going, I think you should take a read through this. They put in some stuff about as a software vendor as a software creator you know as a company that's providing software solutions to other people it's actually not that hard to make yourself easy to contact so people can let you know when there's something you have overlooked like 
there's still a log4j version in your code that you didn't notice with the best will in the world and you haven't fixed. Why wouldn't you want someone who's trying to help you to be able to find you and contact you easily? And they say things like, this first one is kind of table stakes, but it's good for any, especially smaller businesses that haven't thought of this, is to develop an asset and application inventory so you know what you have running where. And then... Absolutely. Now, I, behind that, although it doesn't expressly threaten or claim this because it's not for these public servants to make the laws, that's up to the legislature. But I think what they're saying is develop that capacity because if you don't or you couldn't be bothered or you can't figure out how to do it or you think your customers won't notice, eventually you might find that you have little or no choice. <laughs> particularly if you want to sell products to the federal government. <laughs> yeah. And we've talked about this before. Another thing that um, some companies may have not thought of yet, but is important to have is uh, a vulnerability response program. What happens in the, in the case that uh, you do have a vulnerability? What, what are the steps you take? What's the game plan that you follow to uh, address those? Yes, that's what I was alluding to earlier. The simple part of that is you just need an easy way for somebody to find out where they send reports in your organization. And then you need to make a commitment internally as a company that when you receive reports, you'll actually act upon them. Like I said, just imagine that you've got this big Java toolkit that you're selling, a big app with lots of components. And one of the backend systems, there's this big Java thing. And in there, imagine there's still a vulnerable log4j Java archive file, jar file, that you've overlooked. Why wouldn't you want the person who discovered it to be able to tell you quickly and easily, even with a simple email. And, you know, the number of times that you, you know, go on Twitter and you see well-known cybersecurity researchers just saying, hey, does anyone know how to contact XYZ Corp? Didn't we have a case on the podcast of a guy who eventually, I think he, he went on TikTok <laughs> or something <laughs> like right. that. Like he couldn't find out how to contact this yeah. company. And he made this video mm -hmm. saying, hey, guys, I, I know you love your social media videos. I'm just trying to tell you about this bug. Yeah. And eventually, hey, they noticed that. If only I could have gone to yourcompany.com forward slash security.txt, for example. And there's a, here's an email address. That's where we'd prefer you to contact us. Or we do bug bounties through this program. Here's how you sign up for it if you want to be paid or whatever. It's not that hard. And that means that somebody who wants to give you the heads up that you have a bug that you maybe thought you fixed can tell you. I do love the dismount in this article. You write and you channel John F. Kennedy saying, ask not what everyone else can do for you, but think about what you can do for yourself. Because any improvements you make will almost certainly benefit everyone else as well. All right. Well, that is, uh, that is up on the site. If you want to read about that, it is, uh, it is required reading. If you're in any sort of position that you'd have to deal with one of these things, it's a good, uh, at least read the three page summary, if not the 40 some page report. Yeah, and it's it long, but I found it surprisingly thoughtful and I was very pleasantly surprised. And I thought if people read this and random people take a random one tenth of it to heart, we ought collectively to be in a better place. All right. Moving right along, it is summer vacation season, and uh, that often involves taking your gadgets with you. We have some tips for enjoying your summer vacation without uh, not enjoying it. How many gadgets should we take? Pack them all. Yeah. Sadly, the more you take, the bigger your risk, loosely speaking. Your first tip here is um, 
you know, you're packing all your gadgets, should you make a backup before you set off? I'm guessing the answer is yes. I think it's pretty obvious. Everyone knows you should make a backup. They go, I'll put it off. So I thought it was a chance to trot out our little maxim or truism. The only backup you will ever regret is the one you didn't make. And the other thing about making sure that you've backed up a device, whether that's into a, a cloud account that you then log out from, or whether that's to a removable drive that you, you know, encrypt and put in the cupboard somewhere, it means that you can strip down your digital footprint on the device. And we'll get to why that might be a good idea. Just so you don't have your whole digital life and history with you. The point is that by having a good backup and then thinning out what you actually have on the phone, there's just less to go wrong if you lose it, if it gets confiscated, if immigration officials want to look at it, whatever it is. Okay, and somewhat related, uh, moving, moving around, you may lose your laptop and or your mobile phone, so you should encrypt those devices. Yes. Now, most devices are encrypted by default these days. That's certainly true for Android. It's certainly true for iOS. And I think when you get Windows laptops these days, BitLock is there. I'm not a Windows user, so I'm not sure. But certainly, even if you have Windows Home Edition, which annoyingly, and I, I hope this changes in the future, annoyingly doesn't let you use BitLock on removable drives, but it does let you use BitLock on your hard disk. Why not? Because it means that if you lose or it gets confiscated or your laptop or your phone gets stolen, it's not just a case that a crook opens up your laptop, unplugs the hard disk, plugs into another computer and reads everything off it just like that. Why not take the precaution? And of course, on a phone, generally, because it's pre-encrypted, the encryption keys are pre-generated and they're then protected by your lock code. Don't go, well, I'll be on the road. I might be under pressure. I might need it in a hurry. I'll just go one, two, three, four, or oh, 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 for the duration of my vacation. Don't do that. The lock code on your phone is what manages the actual full-on encryption and decryption keys for the data on the phone. So pick a long lock code. I recommend 10 digits or longer. Set it and practice using it at home for a few days, for a week before you leave until it's second nature. Don't just go, oh, one, two, three, four is good enough. Or, oh, I'll have a long lock code. I'll go, oh, 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 oh. That's eight characters. No one will ever think of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and this is a really interesting one. Um, you have some advice about people crossing national borders. Yes, that has become something of an issue these days because many countries, I think the US and the UK amongst them, but they're by no means the only ones, can say, look, uh, we want to have a look at your device. Would you unlock it, please? And you go, no, of course not. It's private. Like, you've got no right to do that. Well, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. You're not in the country. And, you know, the, my kitchen, my rules. They might say, OK, fine. You have every right to refuse, but then we're going to refuse your admission. And so wait here in the, <laughs> wait here in the arrivals lounge until we can transfer you to the departure lounge to get on the next flight home. Basically... Don't worry about what's going to happen. Like, oh, I might be forced to reveal data at the border. Look up what the conditions of entry are, you know, privacy and surveillance rules in the country you're going to. And if you genuinely don't like them, then don't go there. Find somewhere else to go to. Or simply enter, tell the truth, and reduce your digital footprint, like we were saying with the backup. The less digital life stuff you carry with you, the less there is to go wrong. and the less likely it is that you will lose it. So be prepared is all I'm saying. Okay, and uh, this is a good one. Public Wi-Fi, is it safe? 
or unsafe. Depends, I guess. Yeah, there's a lot of people, oh, golly, if you use public Wi-Fi, you're doomed. Hmm. Of course, we've all been using public Wi-Fi for years, actually. (laughs) I don't know anyone who's actually stopped using it out of fear of getting hacked. But I do know people have gone, well, I know what the risks are. That router could be owned by anybody. It could have some crooks on it. It could have an unscrupulous coffee shop operator. Or it could be just somebody hacked it who was here on vacation last month because they thought it was terribly funny. And it's just leaking data because ha, ha, ha. But, you know, if you're using apps that have end-to-end encryption, and if you're using sites that are HTTPS, so they're end-to-end encrypted between your device and the other end, then there are considerable limits to what even a completely hacked router can reveal because any malware that's been implanted by a previous visitor will be implanted on the router not on your device okay and next uh, what i consider to be computing's version of seldom cleaned public toilets should i use kiosk pcs in airports or hotels Cybersecurity aside, just the number of people that have had their hands on that dirty, dirty keyboard and mouse. Exactly. So this is the flip side of the, should I use public Wi-Fi? Should I use a kiosk PC, say, in the hotel or in an airport? And the big difference between a Wi-Fi router that's been hacked and a kiosk PC that's been hacked. And that's the problem that if you are using, if your traffic's going encrypted through a compromised router, there's a limit to how much it can spy on you. If your traffic is originating from a hacked or compromised kiosk computer, then basically, from a cybersecurity point of view, it is 100% game over. Mm-hmm. In other words, that kiosk PC, it will have, essentially could have unfettered access to all the data that you send and receive on the internet before it gets encrypted and after the stuff you get back gets decrypted. So the encryption becomes essentially irrelevant. Every keystroke you type, you should assume it's being tracked. Every time something's on the screen, you should assume that someone can take a screenshot. Everything you print out, you should assume that there's a copy made in some hidden file. So my advice is treat those kiosk PCs as a necessary evil and only use them if you really have to. Yeah, I was at a hotel last weekend and uh, which had a kiosk PC and Curiosity got the better of me and walked up and uh, was running Windows 10 and you could install anything on it. It was not locked down and someone, whoever had used it before, had not logged out of Facebook. It was just like, and this is a chain hotel that should have known better, but just like a wide open system that nobody had logged out of and just a potential cesspool of (laughs) cyber crime waiting to happen. So you could just plug in a USB stick and then go like install keylogger, install network sniffer. Mm Mm-hmm install rootkit yeah put flaming skulls on wallpaper yeah Yeah. oh no thank you this next one doesn't have a great answer it's uh what about spy cams in hotel rooms and airbnbs these are tough to find yes i put that in because of the question we regularly get asked we wrote about three different instances of undeclared spy cameras well that's a sort of tautology isn't it one was in a a farm work hostel in oz where this chat was inviting people on uh, visitor visas who are allowed to do farm work oh i'll give you a place to stay it turned out he was a peeping tom one at a airbnb house in ireland 
this was a family who travelled all the way from New Zealand, so they couldn't just get in the car and go home and give up. <laughs> and the other one was a, a, a hotel, an actual hotel in South Korea, where this was a really creepy one. I don't think it was the chain that owned the hotel. It was some corrupt employees or something. They put spy cameras in rooms, and I kid you not, Doug, they were actually selling basically pay-per-view. I mean, how creepy is that? Mm. The good news in, in two of those cases, uh, the perpetrators were actually arrested and charged. So you know, it, it ended badly for them, which is quite right. The problem is that if you read the Airbnb story, you've got a link on Naked Security, the guy who was staying there with his family was actually uh, an IT person slash cybersecurity expert. And he noticed that one of the rooms, because you're supposed to declare if there are any cameras in an Airbnb, apparently, and he noticed that one room had two smoke alarms. When do you see two smoke alarms? Mm -hmm. It's not necessary, right? You have yeah. one. And so he started looking at one of them, and it looked like a smoke alarm. And the other one, well, you know, the little hole that has the LED that blinks wasn't blinking. And when he peered through, he thought, that looks suspiciously like a lens mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for a camera. And it was, in fact, uh, a spy camera disguised as a smoke alarm. And the proprietor had hooked it up to the regular Wi-Fi. So he was able to find it by doing a basically a, a network scan you know, mm. using a tool like Nmap or something yeah. like that. He found this device, and when he when he pinged it, it was pretty obvious that from its network signature that it was actually a webcam, uh, although webcam hidden in a smoke alarm. So he got lucky. Unfortunately, this same chap and it, we we wrote an article about you know what he found, but we're linking and explaining what he had blogged about at the time. This is back in 2019. And so this is three years ago. You imagine technology has probably even come along a little bit more since then. He went online to see, you know, what chance do I actually have of finding cameras in the next places where I stay? And he came across a spy camera. Now, imagine the picture quality would be pretty terrible, but it is still a working digital spy camera, not wireless. You have to wire it in. But it was embedded in a Phillips head screw, Doug. Amazing. Literally the type of screw that you would find in, you know, the cover plate that you get on a light switch, mm -hmm. say. That size of screw or the screw that you get on uh, the socket out power outlet cover plate. Like a Phillips head screw of regular modest size. I'm looking them up on really? Amazon right now. A pinhole screw camera for 20 bucks. Yeah. If that's not connected back to the same network or it's connected to a device that just records to an SD card, mm -hmm. it's going to be very difficult to find it. So sadly... The answer to that question, the, the the reason why I didn't write question six, how do I find spy cams in the rooms I stay in just in case, is the answer is you can try, but unfortunately it's that whole absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately we don't have advice that says, here's a little gizmo you can buy that's the size of a mobile phone. You press a button and it bleeps if there's a spy cam yeah. in the room. Yeah. Okay, and our final tip for those... Those of you out there who can't help yourselves, I'm going on vacation, but what if I want to take my work laptop along? I can't answer that. You can't answer that. It's not your laptop. It's work laptop. The simple answer is ask. And if they say, where are you going? And you give the name of the country and they say no, then that's that. Mm -hmm. You can't take it along. And maybe you say, great, can I leave it here? Can you lock it up in the IT cupboard till I get back? Great. And what you may find is if you go and ask IT, say, I'm going to country X. If I were taking my work laptop along, do you have any special recommendations? Give them a listen. Because if work 
think there are things that you ought to know about privacy and surveillance in the place you're going, then if they apply to work, probably applies to your home life. All right. That is a great article. Go read the rest of it. Or, uh, well, let uh, me finish. I, I'm so proud of the two jingles I finished with. Uh, one of them yes, everyone let's, will heard before. We've heard if in doubt, don't give it out. But this is a new one uh, that you yes, came up with, which I really like. If your life's on your phone, why not leave it at home? Yeah, there you go. All right. In the interest of time, we have another article on the site. I beg you to read. This is called Facebook 2FA Scammers Return This Time in Just 21 Minutes. This is uh, the same scam that used to take 28 minutes. So they've shaved seven minutes off this scam. And uh, we do have a reader question about this post. Reader Peter writes in part, do you really think these things are coincidental? I helped change my father-in-law's British telecom broadband contract recently. And the day the change went ahead, he had a phishing telephone call from British telecom. Obviously it could have happened any day, but things like that do make you wonder about timing, Paul. Yes. We always get people go, you know what? I got one of these scams, whether it's a about a Facebook page or Instagram copyright or like this chap's dad, you know, telecom related. I got the scam the very morning after I did something that directly related to what the scam was about. Surely it's not a coincidence. And I think for most people, the assumption is because they're they're commenting on naked security, they realize it's a scam. They're saying, surely the crooks knew. In other words, there must be some inside information. The flip side of that is people who don't realize that it's a scam and won't comment on naked security. They go, oh, well, it can't be a coincidence. It, therefore, it must be genuine. In most cases, in my experience, it absolutely is down to coincidence simply on the basis of volume. So the point is that in most cases, I am convinced that the scams that you get, they are coincidences and the crooks are relying on the fact that it's easy to, if you like, manufacture those coincidences when you can send so many emails to so many people so easily and you're not trying to trick everybody, you're just trying to trick somebody. And Doug, if I can squeeze this in at the end, use a password manager because then you can't put the right password into the wrong site by mistake. And that helps you enormously with those scams, whether they're coincidental or not. All right. Very good, as always. Thank you for the comment, Peter. If you have an interesting story, comment, or question you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.